You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden – You've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay at home person and the other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement and so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in, uh, in, the, uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16% increase simply because now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, You'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's gonna look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market? Before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and and the major you know breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home, what does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have. Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motor home and become members of the Good Sam Club? <laughs> And travel all over the country, is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? 
By the way, that's a great conversation to have, whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on, after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out how much each other is going to need. How much space will your partner need every day? You've got to figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south. Because now we, now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning? Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that, you know, your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to, how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical, okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? 
It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say? At your funeral, what do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, This is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start, you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using. But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow-up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues, And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. These phones, all the technology should be helping us get closer with those we love. So in the Coach's Corner today, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we can enable technology in our lives without disabling the family. And if the goal is connectivity, connectivity is defined like this. It's the state or quality of being connected, the ability to link and to communicate with others. So it doesn't just mean we get a good Wi-Fi signal. That's great. That's probably the easy side of connectivity. The hard side is when you want to connect humans and make sure that we understand those around us and make sure that we listen we pay attention. And so uh, let me give you some tools that might help your family in the age of technology and connectivity to connect a little bit more effectively and how to manage your technology use. One of the first principles and rules is 
look look at your technology as a magnifying lens, not the boogeyman. Right? Not the evil, dangerous, you know, cancer plague that is destroying our youth. Sure. The, it's impacting our kids a lot. But the, I, when I say it's a magnifying lens, technology really is your friend. It's not your enemy. Many would love to just sit there and blame technology for all of the problems in their lives, for the fact that their children are distant, for the fact that their kids don't get good grades, the fact that they're looking at stuff online that they shouldn't be seeing, for their overeating because they sit in front of TV or their, their obesity because they never exercise. But another way to look at technology is not just to blame it for everything, but maybe look at it as a magnifying lens, meaning what happens with technology is it's going to magnify your natural tendencies anyway. If, if you have a tendency to get a little lazy and not exercise, having technology and cable TV and Wi-Fi and Netflix is probably only going to magnify your inherent weakness. It does with me. If I love to just escape in a movie, then the technology is going to, you know, shine a light on that and grow and, and grow it and, and embolden it. So it's not necessarily the cause of your problems, but it is magnifying and exposing your biggest weaknesses. If you have a self-esteem weakness and getting online on Facebook Facebook may not just be driving and causing your self-esteem problems as you look at the neighbors who are all doing so much better than you. It's just magnifying the fact that you have kind of a natural inclination to have lower self-esteem. And that's how you use it to magnify the weakness. So make sure you're pointing that out and, and focus as a family on and be real. Like Dr. Karens was saying, really look at yourself and ask, what am I doing with my technology that's har- that's harming me and was the, is that not a problem if i didn't have the technology would i not naturally just find my way to waste that time anyway so think of magnifying lens as 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 a, think of technology as a magnifying lens not as the boogeyman another rule get better not busy one of the things that um we we spend a lot of time doing with our technology is we try to use it to just get more done and the sad thing about getting more done is many times we spend all day doing things that we didn't need to do, that weren't even important to do. So instead of just using your your tools and your devices to get a lot more done, let's make sure we're actually improving, right? Let's make sure we're actually getting better. Make sure that you actually are changing and improving, not just being entertained. That's the Coach's Corner. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Okay, when you hear the word Appalachia, what comes to your mind, right? Uh, Many stereotypes might pop up. Uh, Some jokes might come to mind. You know, words like hillbilly, 
uh, toothless. We have a uh, one of our producers that works with us, Lauren Simpson, who's from West Virginia. We asked her, what what do people say? And she says, it's not good. It's not good. Uh, the land of toothless is one of the uh, stereotypes that she heard heard a lot. And so as we as we talk about Appalachia, we might think that they're a little backwards. We might think that you know they don't have the technology. They're not even using current or the uh, or the more or the newer iPhones or whatever. But the reality is they may actually be onto something. They may be teaching us something, whether intentionally or not, about how we all should feel about technology and to be a little more careful around it. Uh, here to talk with us about this idea is um, Sherry Hamby. She's a research professor of psychology and the director of the Life Paths Research Program at the University of the South. Dr. Hamby is also the founding editor of the American Psychological Association Journal of Psychology of violence. And uh, we're honored to have you, Sherry. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So talk to us about this. You focused some of your research on um, Appalachian residents. How, how did it come to be that you, you focused on Appalachia? And what can we all learn about technology and uh, from lessons from the Appalachian residents? Uh, well, like Lauren, I have uh, roots in Appalachia, I have many uh, ancestors from this region, and I've been back in this part of the country myself for about 10 years, and so that's how I hmm. decided to focus on it. But uh, but even with those roots, I was definitely surprised by some of what we found in this study uh, in terms of the, especially the kind of elements of you. I've heard all those stereotypes about Appalachia, and everybody tends to see it through this real deficit-based lens. Right. But I found a lot of stories of strength and resilience and people making very intentional choices that, uh, you know, especially in the light of some of these scandals we've been facing with. Oh, we're losing you there, Sherry. Are you there? We... Uh... We're not able to hear you. We're gonna we're gonna take you offline and go see if we we'll call you back and see if we can connect uh, with a better line. Speaking of technology, yeah, one of the ideas that a lot of people feel is that because you know they may not have the money there, the resources there, nobody can or does invest in technology. But um, one of the things that we are also figuring out is that it's probably not. Uh, always about the ability to pay for it. Sometimes it's just the smarts to know that, hey, I don't need to give my money to big government or to big companies that are going to end my time and my data and my information and access. Um, it's uh, it's just a smaller way, or it's a it's a smarter way, I think, to make sure that um, that we can that we can live through this technology burst that we're going through. Again, we are speaking with Sherry Hamby, who is teaching us the lessons she learned from the Appalachian uh, uh, people from Appalachia area. And uh, Sherry, are you back with us? Yes, I am. Sorry about that. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. So it really, I mean, you found that as you were researching it, I mean, it's not just a financial issue for the people uh, that uh, that you were studying. They really have... Kind of um, some some basic good old fashioned values as well that were driving them to be a little bit more hesitant to just quickly adopt technology. Right, there's definitely a strong threads in the interviews that we did with people about self reliance and 
just wanting to not become dependent on a machine or a piece of technology and and also about i mean many people have have talked about the ways that technology can be sort of disconnecting or depersonalizing and I think that's not necessarily unique to Appalachia, but in a place like this where there's so much value on community, it was just this really strong thread that was strong enough here that a lot of people were choosing, you know, not to have a smartphone or not to engage in technology. And uh, you do see, of course, the whole range, but then there was just a lot of respect. I think one of the things that struck me the most about the interviews is that even though there are, of course, a lot of people here who are high technology users, just like anywhere, that that a lot of them were also expressing deep respect for their neighbors who had chosen to hmm. not engage in technology in the same way that, that they had. How, how did they choose? I mean, it seems like in this world where we're almost forced in a way to deal with and, and to, you know, adopt technology because every way, everything's going that way. How did you see that they intentionally avoid it or don't use it? Well, some of them, I mean, some of them, you know, I guess maybe what you might call titrate their use of technology. So a fair number of people here, at least compared to the general population, still prefer to use, uh, you know, flip phones or, or older styles of phones that don't have smartphone technology and so that they're not doing that. So they do have a, a cell phone, but they're <clears throat> not going with with that type or a lot of them, you know, are just using many fewer forms of technology, so they're not on Facebook or they don't use email. Uh, you know, again, you do see a, a full range of it, but here I think what really captures this community is this concept of, of, of choice and, and variability. And so in most of the rest of the country, the uses of these devices is up around 90% or more of the population. And, and down here, you still see a lot of it, but it's more as many as like, you know, one out of four people are not using the technology at all. Mm. And then there's another group of almost as big that are using it in much smaller doses than what you see in the rest of the country. Do you notice, is there a difference with the teenagers? Are they, are they, do they have the same numbers? Are they not adopting at the same rate as the, as their parents or are they just still avid adopters? Well, like in the rest of the country, teens are more likely to use a lot of these forms of technology than adults. But we did do focus groups and interviews with the teenagers. And and even with them, you know, one of the other key values that's so important in Appalachia is humility. And even a lot of them made some very strong statements about how they just didn't like this sort of selfie culture and this kind of constant documentation of their lives. And several of them are like, you know, I see these kids all day long in school. I don't need to get home and see, you know, like three more selfies in the course of, you know, the afternoon. And uh, so even there, we saw quite a lot of resistance, which I thought was a real sign that some of the traditional cultural values are being preserved across generations. Hmm. That is is fascinating. In in doing this research, um, is I mean, and what's amazing I think about it is it's such it's kind of a nice data set for all of us to be able to go look at uh, kind of old school values. And I wonder if it if there's a collision that you see between companies, jobs that demand that you have technology, getting jobs and employment 
that are much more kind of technology based um is is it hindering do you sense their ability to progress well a lot of people i you know this i mean this certainly is a, a area that is uh low income in general i mean again you know i think what you see is a, a lot of variability i mean there's certainly people here who have tech jobs uh, but i uh you know it's certainly it's a challenge out here in these more rural areas to really figure out a way to have a good job and a good career and the the career choices can be limited. Uh, So I I don't know. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Mm. I think that a lot of them did mention that they would only use technology related to work and that it hadn't kind of crept into this 24 seven existence. I mean, I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I, I check my email in the evening and on the weekends and uh, a lot of them seem to still have stronger boundaries around some of that, which frankly, I I found myself envying a little bit. Oh, absolutely. We're speaking with Sherry Hamby. Um, She's a professor, a research professor of psychology and the director of Life Paths Research Program at the University of the South. And she's teaching us um, about uh, resisting technology appellation style. Talk to us about what what are the takeaways that that you see the rest of us could benefit from? What, how could we, uh, you know, living even even be a little bit more tech centered? Maybe a little bit of an adopter of technology, but still bring in a little bit of the appellation style. Well. I think that all of us, I mean, even myself, when I went into this study, I think I was going in with this sort of typical mainstream idea that, like, more technology is always better. And and since doing this study, I have, I mean, I'm a Thai technology user, and I have found myself thinking more about, you know, is this really going to be an advantage? Is this going to also create a burden? So just asking myself that. I have been trying to set better limits around my technology use, and uh, really, I you know, it's it's been kind of a wake up call for me to you know not maybe always be answering emails on the weekends, and that that can wait till Monday morning. Uh, and certainly, uh, a lot of people here, just like anywhere, we're learning how to navigate that with the skills to set your privacy settings on Facebook. I. I went into Facebook and found all the programs, you know, going into the settings that had shared my information. And I was just horrified by that. There were like 34 different programs. And so this was kind of a wake-up call to me to go back and sort of do an inventory of what I'm using and who has access to my information. And I think that's a lesson that anybody could take away from this. Oh, no, absolutely. You, you also brought up in, uh, in your article the fact that uh, they're using humor to express their concerns. Um, how, how do you see that they approach their their worries, their concerns with technology by by using their sense of humor? Sure. I mean, that is something that is just such an important value around here and not just any kind of humor. So a lot of humor about Appalachia, as you said at the introduction, is really pretty aggressive humor that mm-hmm is very condescending and even demeaning. But in Appalachia, the type of humor that is that is most highly valued is self-deprecating humor and really being able to poke fun at themselves. And, and I think that we have found in our research that, that, you know, psychologists can be such a serious group that they don't 
study humor very much, and <laughs> we have found that that's just been an incredibly useful coping skill, not only for dealing with technology or any kind of technology-based uh, victimization, like scams or what have you, but for, for all other types of things, too. And they're just great. I mean, one woman was like, I don't want anything as smarter than I am. And, you know, <laughs> obviously she didn't really think their phone is like smarter than her. But by using that kind of joking around, you know, she was able to create some distance between her and the pressures to adopt that technology. And I think anybody could really benefit from from taking a more humorous view of some of these things that were being pushed on by these corporate forces. I agree. They And also just they fight back. Um, it seems like they have kind of the willingness, the spirit to fight back. You tell a story of a person that um, that posed as an FBI agent to kind of yeah. go back and get a scammer. Yeah, that was another one that like really surprised me <laughs> because uh, I'm sure everybody who is listening today has had somebody try to scam them or promise them, you know, some that they've inherited some ridiculous amount of money and all you have to do is like click here and give us your bank account information and uh, you know, and so this uh, man had experienced a scam like that and he used some kind of technology to reverse ping like where this computer was and to pose as an IP, uh, FBI agent and tell them that, uh, you know, we're, I know where you are and you gave the location and I'm coming after you and like really freaked this guy out. And, uh, and of course I'm sitting there thinking <laughs> in that, well, you know, that's not actually technically legal to pose as an FBI agent. And, yeah. but the, but the other people, I mean, I think you can see culture when you hear those kinds of extreme examples, because, Nobody else in the room said, well, that might be a risky thing to do, or are you sure that's safe, or I'm not sure that's legal. They were all like, they just were all like really impressed with that, and they were all asking how he did that. And Now, uh, now we've got know, a bunch so, of faux FBI agents out there yeah, fighting I, the battle. I, I, yeah, I hope not, but I think it does show that, that threat of self-reliance and and certainly, you know, I just saw an article about it in the uh, news the other day that that there's a real problem and there's kind of a gap in the criminal justice system is that if you don't get taken by one of these scammers, then it's hard for you to know what to do. I mean, there's places to go if you've actually had your money stolen by them, but you know, what can we do to push back against this, you know, this on, you know, onslaught of fraudulent attempts that are Mm. being made on all of us every day. And, uh, you know, and I think that it's a typically Appalachian thing to do that, well, if the system hasn't come up with a way to address that, then we're going to think of one on our own. And I wouldn't really endorse uh, posing as an FBI agent, but I, I do appreciate the, the threat of sticking up for yourself that's embodied in that. Yeah. Well, another thing, just as we wrap up, that I, I was really impressed about with your research is this idea that um, I mean, because, again, we, we think that people are just ignorant to technology, so they're not adopting it because they're not smart enough, they don't get it. They But you bring up a great point that resistance is not ignorance, and we need to be careful of not being biased or prejudiced about our seniors that are resisting maybe adopting technology too quickly or certain groups of people that, that have other reasons, maybe other – other, you know, deeper choices or motives for why they don't want to adopt technology. Absolutely. I think that's the most important take-home message is 
it's just to respect the the choices that people are making and to you know to look behind them and not just assume that there's something ignorant or or low income is the reason for these choices because I found that a lot of them were really based on these very intentional decisions to resist those pressures. Mm, great insights. Uh, Sherry, thank you so much for your time and your work. Um, we've coined the phrase now from, uh, you know, go go from Apple Nation to Appalachian. Uh, the rule is take the Appalachian style to handle your Apple Nation. And uh, we appreciate your insight, Sherry. That's uh, great research. Again, Sherry Hamby is a research professor of psychology uh, at the University of the South and is also the founding editor of the American Psychological Association Journal of Psychology of Violence, which has a top 10 ranking in family studies and criminology um, based on impact factor. Powerful stuff. We appreciate Sherry's insight as well. And man, let's not, we don't have to judge the non-tech users. And it doesn't make you smarter and better because you use technology. Doesn't it really matter how you use it? And if you're actually, I mean, if you're just using it to be more addicted and numb, it's not helping much, uh, any of us. So we will continue the journey more straight ahead. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball. Welcome back, folks. You know, we hear and we talk a lot about on this show and other places the importance of resiliency with our kids. We somehow have to help them be resilient. And I've, as I've taught that and learned more about it, studied it, and talked to people on the show, we... I'm not sure we've created a great metaphor for that yet. Like, I'm not sure that we 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 see exactly what why and what it means to be resilient. I mean, we know that they need to be able to have grit. That's another word we hear out there a lot. They've got to be strong and tough. But I I've I've found I think a metaphor that may work as a parent to help all of us look at it a little bit differently. So if if I told you that you were going to raise your child. And eventually that child would have to go on their own journey, right? Eventually you're going to have this rite of passage. It might be a graduation from high school. Uh, It might be a graduation from the university, wherever this rite of passage takes place. You send them on their way, and you will no longer be able to influence your child's journey directly. You'll you'll be able to be, you know, a participant at times in their journey. You'll be able to talk to them, maybe to guide them a little bit, but pretty much they're going to go on their own excursion. And if they're going to leave on their own excursion, you would want to make sure that you get them prepared, right? You're going to uh, equip them and get them ready and tooled to be able to handle the journey. But if you have to send them on the journey, what would you want to have, um, what would you want them to know? And what would they need to know to make it on the journey? Or would they just need to make sure that they have certain things, right? Like a tent or a knife. Make sure you've got a knife. You need something to start fire to keep you warm. But aren't there a lot of other things on the path, on the road, on the journey that could come into play? And so one of the things I've I've found is there's five different areas that we want to make sure that our children are independent when they go on the journey. 
To me, these five areas are the areas where we create uh, resiliency because these are five different areas that need to actually feed upon each other along this path and their journey. I mean, think about it. If, you're, if your child were to cross a river and lose everything that they've got, what would they do? And would they be able to handle that trial along the journey road? So here's, here are the five areas we want to work on when it comes to creating resiliency. First and foremost, we want to create uh, physical strength and independence. We want, them, we want them to be physically strong, meaning that they know how to actually run their own physical body. They understand their body. They're healthy. They have hygiene habits. They have a healthy diet. They know what a healthy diet is. They exercise. They, they have found the exercising uh, skills and abilities that they need to make it through their life. As part of the physical pre- preparation for our kids, they need to be financially independent, right? They need to actually be able to exist physically, to pay their bills, to make ends meet financially. So they probably ought to learn a little bit about finance. Uh, they also ought to have some career guidance and 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 have somewhere that they can just physically go contribute to the world. Now, to me, that is generally where a lot of us spend most of our time parenting. It's kind of the equipping of our child to be able to deal with the physical world, right? It's a great key, and it's it's an important place where our children need to be independent. But there is a level a little deeper, and that is what I would call socially independent. Our kids need to be socially independent. They need along the road in their journey, they need to know how to handle the people they come across. They need to know how to take the place of another person and actually feel what others are feeling. It's called empathy, right? They need to be able to connect with people on the journey and not be taken advantage of on this on this journey. They need to know how to get support and help along the way. They need to have a guide. They need to have a buddy. They need to know how to choose a guide. They need to know how to choose a partner. So the social independent side is about partners and passion, having more people around you that can share their excitement, their energy, and maybe sometimes carry you when you don't have the energy to do it yourself. The third area that we could use as we go on this journey and trying to create resilient kids is the intellectual area. To me, they've got to be intellectually independent, meaning when they get out into the world and their skills aren't working anymore because they're now confronting another challenge along that journey that they didn't know was going to be there, do they have the ability to go independently learn? Do they have the skills to actually acquire information? Do they know how to get the technical know-how to make stuff happen? Do they have uh, the helps that they need, the watchouts? Have they learned from the people that they've socially connected with what they've learned along their path in the journey, right? So the intellectual independence is what creates more practices for us and helps us create more possibilities for how we can handle the journey. The intellectual side of it would be staying curious. We've got to stay curious instead of thinking we know what's going on, and we need to teach our kids to stay curious. And we've got to, instead of giving our kids answers all day long, we have to teach them how to find answers. One of the best ways to do that is to say, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. Go go look it up and come back and tell me what you learned. Or ask them, what do they think? A lot of times you'll notice your kids are asking you the questions. Turn it back on them. Identify how they're growing. Ask them every day. What have you learned today? 
Have them solve your problems with you. Turn over difficult conflicts or difficult situations that you need to deal with as a parent. Turn it over to them. When you have your toilet break down, don't just go fix it. Bring them along and ask them to help you or task them to go fix it. And if they don't know how, ask them to figure it out. Wouldn't that be wild, right? So are your children physically independent? Are they socially independent? And are they intellectually independent? Because if they are, then they're going to have the practices, the possibilities, the partners, the passion, the progress, and the protection to make it on their journey. Next hour, we'll be talking more about the other things we've got to have if we want to have resilient children and help them on this journey, because you're not going to be doing the journey with them forever. And if they're not resilient enough to make this uh, life trek, then guess what? They may be in trouble. And then they'll have to live with you forever. That's uh, that's a promise. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Have you ever witnessed or been part of a rip-roaring argument, you know, where emotions are high on both sides and everyone's, you know, simultaneously arguing for their point? No one's listening to each other. Have you ever tried to step in in the middle of one of those situations? Well, it's not an easy task, but it is the life of uh, Diane Musho Hamilton. And uh, she is a professional mediator, a teacher of Zen. She's also the author of Everything is Workable, a Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. And she joined us not long ago to share her experience with us. I began the interview by asking, how did uh, mediation and the Zen approach come together for you? Well, I, I've always been interested in, in helping people get along because I've always needed a little help getting along myself. I'm a little bit hot-tempered and kind of fiery, so... It was kind of important to me growing up to sort of figure out, you know, what could I do to actually listen and make contact with people in a real way. And then I learned how to meditate when I was in my early 20s, and I realized that meditation and mediation are very similar. Meditation, when you sit down and quiet your mind, you're really kind of coming into wholeness with your experience, becoming one, if you will. And whenever we're mediating, we're bringing two divergent points of view into one. So it's the same kind of you know, the same impulse to kind of create this uh, continuity and a sense of peace in your life. Do you see, um, We it seems like as a culture, as a country, we've become very polarized, you know, in a lot of the things we see um, on television with our politics and um, just, I think, I think lifestyles, everything seems to be so polarized. But yeah. really... The, the the need of this country and of all, I think, humans is to be able to take two disparate ideas and find a way to bring them together. Yeah, precisely. If you look at, there's nothing wrong with polarity. Wherever there's two, there's tension, and that tension can be creative or that tension can be, you know, destructive or aggressive. Uh, polarity becomes a problem when you try to get rid of one end of the spectrum. Hmm. If you work with the the opposition, but you find a way to creatively weave, then, you know, we can get somewhere creative, which is more durable in the in the long run. And you do hear people in political positions saying we need to be able to reach across the aisle. And I think that's really true. It's only when we take a position that the other side is absolutely wrong and can never be right, that we, we try to 
exile their perspective completely out of the room, it just doesn't work. Well, and it seems to make it worse, right? Because if you're going to just try to hush my voice yeah. or, or cr- crush my idea, I'm going to just use that energy to get you. Absolutely. And <clears throat> we, we see that over and over in conflicts that just simply won't go away. You know, they just people... the. It escalates, it gets worse, but it doesn't. It never resolves until people actually make a decision to try to work it through. And, and then it, what's so interesting is, uh, and we've even seen it in, in a variety of different issues, but forever, forever, people were pushing against, uh, you know, kind of the LGBT movement and pushing and pushing and, and basically trying to just eradicate the idea, just eliminate the idea. Mm-hmm. Tension grows, tension grows, and then, um, and this is what I saw in in marriage mediation and divorce is, eventually the courts can then rule, and the courts rule and create a, a law, I guess, or make it legitimate, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden the other side is just supposed to now feel good about it and accept it, but they've been fighting against it, so then that just creates tension, even though. We've had an agreement that's legally imposed or, or placed. Yeah, yeah, it gets it gets tricky in terms of social policy and what's what's legal and what isn't legal. Right. One one way to think about it is that in our one you know one of the great things about the the West and particularly the United States is that er, that we put a huge emphasis on individual rights. So we really want everybody to have their truth and their opinion and their perspective. But the problem is, is we don't teach people how to work with the fact that everybody has an opinion and a perspective. Right. So we grant the right, but we don't give anyone the skills to work with that. It, you know, we're not uh, run by a dictator. We're not uh, just a completely ideological, homogenized society. So therefore, if everybody's going to have an opinion, we all need to actually learn how to work with the fact that everybody has an opinion. Mm-hmm. And I see it like in the marriage mediation um, you know, at some point, why mediation would work better than, I guess, litigation is because we're we we both have a chance now to do this together, uh-huh. so that we can both buy into the outcome. That's right. And usually, what happens when you sit down with two people, particularly people in a marriage or who know each other, who've been in business before, you find out that people have way more in common than they do right. uh, not in common. And so, you really, you know, in a mediation process, we try to get people's genuine wants and needs out on the table. We find that, you know, nine out of ten, they basically agree to. And then, what, you know, what kind of creative ideas can we get? over this one stumbling block, but you have to really build this sense that there's way more, just just like in culture in the United States, we have way more in common than we do different oh, yeah. in terms of the political party. But then we yeah. spend all of our energy on the part the we don't agree on, right? Absolutely. And then even in our disagreement, and we share our disagreements, like if I could honestly understand something I disagree with, mm-hmm. even in that disagreement, I'll find out even 80% of that I agree with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it just becomes more and more finite, doesn't it? Finite when I... I You you really talk with people. People basically want health and well-being, and people want everyone fundamentally to be well off. I mean, it's it's a very small group of people that are hate mongers. There are a few. They're out there. They want people to be destroyed. There's a destructive impulse. But the vast majority of people really would kind of prefer if everybody had what they needed and everybody got along. Mm. Why is it, do you sense, that we... Um, that polarity brings the tension. Why is it that we as humans are more inherently prone to have conflict and tension in disagreement instead of just inherent peace? Well, I think that, you know, in, in 
in our world and in, in our relationships and in reality itself, we have all of that which is the same, and we have the difference. And the sameness is what creates continuity, it's peace, it's togetherness, it's coherence. The difference is exciting. It's what creates change. It's what moves culture. It's what generates excitement. If you and I started to have a fight right now, everybody would perk up. Oh, yeah, they'd listen. Yeah, so differences, differences have their role. The problem is, is that we don't generally know how to work with them. We don't know how to capture the excitement and the stimulation and really tolerate it in order to kind of get to the next place of sameness that integrates that difference. I always say that the, that the harmony that comes from integrating difference is greater than the harmony that doesn't include difference. Mm. Yeah, it's true. It's a lower, it's kind of a, yeah, it's like compromise or it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's imposed conformity uh-huh. kind of. Yeah. yeah. It's when I think about it, um there's there's principles and I know I'm sure you've pulled out of your Zen practices um a lot of principles that will help us in this process. Mm-hmm. Give us give us one of them and then we'll take a break and then I want you to teach us what are some of the what are some of the tools, the principles, the rules mm-hmm. of Zen that might help us manage mm-hmm. the conflict better. Okay, great. Um, I would I would say the first rule is is we have to ask ourselves: Do we be- genuinely believe that there there's more than one way to see something? Do we genuinely believe that there's more than one perspective, and that those perspectives may not be totally true, but there could be a grain of truth in it? Mm. We have to challenge ourselves to really ask that. Some people will say no. So that's that's the first thing you got to ask yourself: Do you think someone else legitimately could have a different point of view from you? Yeah. That's because they could have a different point of view from you and they it could even if it's obviously unhealthy or inappropriate, it could still be truth for them. Yeah, that's right. And and it may, as I said, it may not be totally true or it may be a lesser truth. But how we have to be able to accord somebody, even when I was trained in, uh, as an undergraduate, we would talk about working with psychotic people and finding a way, even with someone who's, who's living in kind of a reality of their own, what, how could we find a way to legitimize their experience, hmm. even if it isn't, isn't agreed upon by anybody else, because they're, they're suffering that point of view. So if you can't find some truth in it, you cannot possibly mediate. That was Diane Hamilton, and uh, she is the author of the book, Everything is Workable, A Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. And isn't it powerful? You, you really can. You can, you can use basic uh, principles taught by Buddha, by Christ, to help us mediate and get through some of the uh, most difficult things in life. If you're willing to just breathe, calm down and slow it down a bit. Well, we will continue the journey doing what we can on this show to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Myth of religion being in decline. Not, it's a myth, folks. Uh, religion's holding steady across the globe. And um, so I thought, hey, let's give you some ideas of why... Uh, the benefits or real impact that religion has in your life. Okay. Try to give you eight different ideas here. By the way, this all comes from livescience.com. 
LifeScience.com. The name of the article is Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life by Stephanie Pappas. Number one, religion helps you resist junk food. Does it? Because I am religious and I eat tons of junk food. But uh, in a study published in January of 2012 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers exposed students to references of God in tests and games and compared the students who saw references of pleasant but non-religious objects, and they found out that those that were religiously cued felt that they had uh, more control over their, their eating habits, whether they'd eat treats or not. Those that actually saw religious cues were less inclined to go eat the junk food. Hmm, interesting, huh? Uh, religion, interestingly, it, it influences your life by maybe possibly, uh, maybe even helping you lose weight. According to a study presented at an American Heart Association meeting in March of 2011, young adults who frequently attended religious activities um, are 50% more likely to uh, not to to 50% less likely to be obese by middle age. So it's you know if you're not eating junk food, it, this religion thing could be actually helping you lose some weight. It also puts a smile on your face. Uh, people uh, that are attending you know their churches regularly. According to a published study in the Journal of American Sociological Review, said that they're more happy, and not because of necessarily the denomination or the belief, but from the joys of being social, of being uh, and joining together with your fellowship of other people on a regular basis. So you know the ability to go to church and hang out with some of your friends and people that you are in your network at your church actually puts a smile on your face. They also found another benefit or impact of religion is it actually raises your self-esteem, you know, if, by the way, you live in the right place. Uh, depending on where you live, religion may also make you feel better about yourself or by making you a part of a larger culture. Um, people who are religious have higher self-esteem and better psychological adjustment than people who aren't. Now, that shouldn't make you mad. Oh, I see. That's why I hate religion. But I, they're probably talking about places where there's a higher concentration of your, you know, religious belief. Maybe the Bible Belt, maybe kind of intermountain area in the United States. If, as uh, Dr. Stark was talking about, uh, Central and South America, where many, many, many people are attending church every single week, up to sixty to seventy percent of people in South America are attending mass. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Uh, interesting thing about religion is it soothes anxiety. Uh, if you're religious, thinking about God can help soothe the anxiety associated with making mistakes. In other words, believers can fall back on their faith to deal with setbacks gracefully, according to a 2010 study. Um, interesting in the study, I guess they also studied atheists. Apparently the trick doesn't work for them. Um, sad. Uh, another uh, impact of religion, it protects against depressive symptoms. Depression recovery proceeds better against a backdrop of religion, according to one 1998 study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Older patients who were hospitalized for physical problems but also suffered from depression recovered better from their mental struggles if religion was an intrinsic part of their lives. That's according to the Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2010. A belief in a caring God improves the response to psychiatric treatment in depressed patients. Wow, that's powerful. In fact, it's directly tied to a specific belief that a supreme being, a supreme being cared for them. 
So the belief, you know, this isn't just a bunch of gobbledygook. It feels good to know that you have a supreme being, a heavenly father or, a you know, a God that's watching over you. Another impact religion has, according to the LiveScience.com report, Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life, is that it motivates doctor visits. You're more likely to go to the doctor if you, uh, in fact, are attending a religion. Religion is linked to health in general, possibly because religious people have more social support, better coping skills, and a more positive self-image than those people who don't join faith-based communities. In a, in a 1998 study published in the Journal of Health, Education, and Behavior, um, regular churchgoers are more likely to get preventative care in the case of mammograms. About 75% of the 1,500 church members in the study got regular mammograms, compared with 60% of a sample of 510 women who were not church members. Anyway, interesting. Last but not least, it lowers your blood pressure. People who attend church often have lower blood pressure than those who don't go at all. That's weird because for me, it actually raises my blood pressure sometimes. Like when you got to teach or you got to speak or you've got to do something. According to a study out of Norway in 2011, those results um, were impressive given the fact that church going is relatively rare in Norway. But what they found is participants who went to church at least three times a month had blood pressures one to two points lower than non-attendees. Powerful. So it helps. It's helpful. And again, you don't have to be all up in everyone's face about your religion. But a couple of things we've learned from Dr. Rodney Stark, it's it's not declining. Religious attendance is holding pretty steady. Some, the younger generations, may not be attending as much, but it doesn't mean they're not believing. It just might mean they're sleeping in, which I'm going to bet in the 70s was pretty common. I'm going to bet the 18 to 30-year-olds in the 70s and the 60s, even the 80s, were probably sleeping in as well. And overall, uh, many things it does do for us. If anything, man, what if it could just elevate our conversation, elevate our, you know, our acceptance of one another, our tolerance, our appreciation of fellow human beings? Huge, powerful. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Interesting, uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're, they're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, and it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because... There's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits, okay? And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Isn't that interesting? One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? Like they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found 
uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua news agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So a single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan, is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they uh they were I guess uh the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try, try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of my children um, is on his phone constantly. And we sit there and we have discussions in our house. And out of nowhere, he pulls statistics. He pulls information. He pulls very relevant lessons and, and data that I had never known. And I ask him where he gets it, and he's like, oh, I saw that on YouTube. He actually uses YouTube to go learn. He knows so much, but he's learned it on YouTube. And, uh, you know, it used to be we would learn that in school. He knows so much. Uh, he can. He just sits there, yeah, well, the sun is this far from the, the earth, and the earth is this far from. And he's just learned it. On YouTube, it's not enough to just use the technology to keep us entertained and busy. Let's and even just chit chatting and talking, or finding the next great video that's moving and motivational. Not that there's anything wrong with that. 
But there's also a point that you, you ought to be able to not have to go to your phone to escape, but instead go now implement what you're learning. Like the question I always ask uh, the people and the couples I work with, what's one thing right now, if you did it right now, would positively impact your life? What's one thing? Can you think of one thing? Let's say you've even, you've even thought about doing it for years. What's, what's that one thing? Well, look, you already know. There's something you can go do right now. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. I'm busy. Well, you're not busy on Netflix. So what we might want to do is when we have that one thing, if we don't know how to do it, we don't know how to do it effectively, use your technology to go get ideas on how to do the one thing that you know you need to go do. Use your technology to be an alarm to get you up earlier to go do that one thing. Make sense? The goal, getting better, not just staying busy. The goal of technology is to help advance us as humans, make us more human, more humane, not just more busy. Another rule, maximize the micro moments. Research from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, author of Love uh, 2.0, Creating Happiness and Health in Moments of Connection. She describes what she calls the power of the micro connections or moments of connection that are so important to our communication. Fredrickson's research suggests that love of another is not some constant, all-encompassing emotion we feel throughout the day. But instead, love is a small micro-moment where we share a caring feeling or emotion. So when you think you love your family, loving of a family is not, that's, that's, that concept is not a constant concept because you're not constantly thinking about loving your family. That, that love would be made up of micro-moments throughout the day where in a loving way for a short period of time, you are connecting in and serving and taking care of your family. She argues it's the micro moments really that are the major drivers of health and can dramatically improve your use of technology. So why not use our technology to create more micro moments? Text your son, hey, do you want to go on a walk today? My son's on campus here at BYU. I'm asking him, do you want to go on a walk today? Micro moment. Hey, how, would, how did that test go? Micro moment. What did your friend say about whatever? Micro moment. So think of your life not just as big events. Well, we took our kids to Disneyland. That's so great. It might be better to have days full of micro moments, just little moments here and there where you express your love, you show your love, you care. And last but not least, we need to power up our will our willpower, right? So the final area we need to improve if we want to make our technology our servant, not our master, is we're going to have to start to to have some more willpower. And the fastest way I've ever found to grow willpower is to have some rules, some won't power, some things we just won't do. So if you want your kids to have more and more willpower with their phones, they need more rules, It sounds horrible, but the rules allow them to exercise their will and turn off the phone or put the phones away, right? Turn off the TV. And the more they have to exercise turning off the TV when they don't want to, the willpower will grow. It's, you know, it's the ability to do something you don't want to do, but you do it because you have a higher need, a higher purpose. And willpower, it's not just something we just talk about. It's something we can actually do. You could take a, have a regular technology fast where you could say every Sunday 
from morning till five o'clock at night, no technology. You can have a phone time when all the phones are turned off and turned in. In our house, we don't want the phones up in our kids' rooms. You might have a book time when only books can be uh, in the house, where we're only reading books. We're not on our phones. You could have exercise times where maybe once in a while you go exercise as a family. You go play tennis as a family. You go do an activity as a family, and we put the phones away. Spend some time writing letters, visiting people, goal setting. But the simple rule is let's spend more time exercising will. And when you do that, they'll learn to power up. So the four rules, very basically, to help us connect better without destroying the family. Think magnifying lens, not boogeyman. Get better, not busy. Maximize the micro moments and power up your will. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We will be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for businesses, burned-out employees create additional workplace problems, which demand additional resources. Costs can be high. Dissatisfied workers lead to inferior products and services and just overall dissatisfaction in an organization. And so it is something we have to pay attention to. Latest research um, talks about the fact that 70% of employees may be uh, detached or like disengaged at work. And so we wanted to see if we could get some help on that issue. Joining us today is Dr. Clark Gaither. He's a board-certified family physician and um, is here today to talk to us about uh, about burnout and how basically we can we can work around and and find some hope, some peace, and uh, and 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 joy back in our lives and in our our jobs. Uh, Clark, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate this opportunity to share what I know about burnout, and uh, thanks to BYU uh, Radio for having me on. You bet. And the name of your book is Reignite. It really, it seems like for some reason, you know, the fire gets burnt out. We we lose the fire uh, in ourselves. What's What do you sense is the biggest cause? What's the culprit of this thing? Well, uh, as you might imagine, uh, there's not just one cause. There's several that uh, kind of rise to the surface. Um, um, an investigator by the name of Christina Maslach kind of worked all this out back in the 80s, and her uh, studies uh, have held uh, true uh, even up, up up till now that there are really six major um, job employee mismatches uh, that cause burnout. Hmm. And uh, many of these will sound familiar uh, to the listeners. Uh, the first one is uh, work overload. The second one is lack of control. The third one is insufficient reward. The fourth one is breakdown of community. The fifth one is absence of fairness. And the last one is conflicting values. So anytime there's a negative impact on those domains where there's a big mismatch between the employee and the job they're being asked to do, that sets up a scenario where people can burn out. Mm. Boy, I mean, some people right there, they're like, holy cow, that's my life. That is my entire, I've got all six of those. 
But it's yeah. it, it's it, it does it just slowly. It starts burning you at every angle. The candle starts to to burn at every angle. What um what made you specifically become so interested in focusing on job related burnout? Well, I, I got interested in burnout because I became burned out. I'm uh, a family physician, and I was in uh, I think my seventeenth year of practice. And I started out medicine uh, real gung ho, excited, energetic. I was you know, really enjoying the practice of medicine, and I enjoyed helping people. But over the years, um, uh, something began to happen that I really didn't understand. And by the 17th year I was in practice, I was just exhausted. I mean, it felt like my soul was tired. Uh, even Even after a weekend off, I really didn't feel rested. And I began to dread uh, going into work and I look forward to Fridays, and, and uh, but really couldn't enjoy my weekend because by Saturday I was already dreading going back to work on Monday. And I knew this, this just wasn't right because I, at one time, very much enjoyed the practice of medicine. And I felt myself being uh, becoming negative, overly negative and detached you know, from my patients. And I really just didn't feel like I was accomplishing anything. I went to my practice partner in 2009 and said, unless something changes, I'm going to have to leave the practice of medicine. I mean, that's how bad I felt. Mm. And he said, well, you know, do whatever you need to do. Just don't leave. We had a very busy, busy practice. And and I, quite frankly, wasn't ready to give up on medicine. Uh, I just felt so bad. I just knew something had to change. And I made some decisions that I thought would make me feel better. And I really didn't know what I was doing, but I thought, I'll try some things to see if it makes me feel better. So I took I took more time off. I mean, it had a cut and pay, but at that point, I didn't care. I would have paid somebody to make myself feel better. So I paid myself by taking some extra days off. I, I began reading more outside of medicine. I began uh, exercising more. I picked up hobbies I'd lost interest in hmm. and really just started taking better care of myself, getting more rest. You know, all of the things I was asking my patients to do, of course, right. uh, I actually started doing. And I was on about 10 different boards, uh, and I got off almost all of those except for the two I cared about. And within weeks, I felt uh, immensely better. Hmm. And so I began to search to figure out what what was wrong, you know, what was the problem, and uh, figured out that I was burned out after doing some reading. And I began to wonder if my colleagues were feeling the same or similar, and it didn't take but a five-minute Google search to figure out this was a big, huge problem, hmm. not only in the healthcare industry, but in other professions as well, and it's getting worse. Is so bur- I started reading everything I could on the subject. Is burnout different than stress? Um, I, I'm, yes. ass- I'm assuming stress is part of it, but it's different, isn't it? It is very different, and Traditionally, when uh, a work environment is, you know, when people sense that there's a problem in the work environment and uh, there's high turnover and the environment feels toxic, they say, well, everybody must be, you know, stressed. And so they bring in stress managers and yoga people and mindfulness trainers and meditation gurus and all of those things to treat stress when the underlying cause really may be burnout. And if you treat stress as if it were burnout, uh, you're not really correcting the underlying causes, and it and it it won't get better. So, 
if you're burned out, I can say with 100% assurance that you're stressed. But you can be stressed without being burned out. So I guess you'd still have you'd still be interested in your life. I mean, right? Part of burnout yeah. is loss of interest, isn't it? Absolutely, it it spills over not only from your professional life, but it will spill over into your profession. I mean, your um, personal life as well. Almost all aspects of it can be affected. So. You know, stress is kind of characterized by over-engagement. People get over-engaged when they're stressed. They get almost hyperactive. With burnout, there's disengagement. People detach or pull back. And with stress, the emotions are overactive. With burnout, the emotions are uh, actually blunted. And stress can produce uh, a sense of urgency or hyperactivity, but burnout produces a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And those are two symptoms common with depression, and that's why we see such high rates of depression in people who are burned out versus people who are stressed. Mm. And with stress, the damage is primarily physical, but with burnout, it's primarily emotional. So when people burn out, they'll often act out in ways, uh, in an attempt to make themselves feel better, and they do this various ways. Um, Sometimes it's with um, a, a string of toxic relationships. Sometimes it's alcohol or uh, chemical dependency, um, and um, or other you know other self-destructive behaviors. But the worst way they act out, especially in my profession, is with suicide. Um, last year, over 400 physicians in the U.S. committed suicide, which mm. is much higher wow. than the general population. Yeah. So this almost sounds like I mean it could be. That that midlife crisis too, like when people start their life changes, and I wonder how many things we've just called a midlife crisis that were really just somebody that's just burned out. They're exhausted. Well, it, it's worth considering and taking a look at. I can tell you, you know, we all go through different seasons of our life, and um, and because we do, our tastes will change, our goals will change, how we view things will change. And and some people, when they discover that they're uh, burned out at work, uh, they'll just put their head down and grind away um, until retirement. And and they'll they get into what I call a burned out mindset, where they'll they'll say to themselves, "It's too late for me to change. I've got too much invested in this work. Uh, I don't have the right skill set to move on. I don't have the right resources. I won't make as much money doing something else. And so they they, they put all these roadblocks in front of themselves, but uh, none of that's true. And it it's, uh, really takes some self-reflection to, to realize that this life is, is way too short to live it burned out. In fact, you can never live a life of happiness or passion-driven purpose if you're burned out. So if you know any of those symptoms sound familiar, it's worth a moment to pause and reflect and say, you know, am I really just burned out at work? Uh, and if so, what do I need to do about it uh, to, to make myself better? Uh, again, we're talking with Clark Gaither, who is a medical doctor. He is a board-certified family physician and author of three books, uh, and his latest book is Reignite. As he's as he's sharing with it with us today, we're we're learning about the impact of uh, burnout. Reignite, transform from burned out to on fire, and find new meaning in your career and your life. 
So, Clark, what what are the telltale signs that we're experiencing burnout in our life? There are three principal hallmarks or symptoms or signs of burnout. The first, and I hit all three of these, by the way, and Mm. the first is uh, emotional exhaustion. That's where you come to feel that you can no longer give of yourself to the client, the customer, or the patient, or coworkers on an emotional or psychological level. You feel you're, you're just spent. You, you've left it all out there. I, and I hear people actually say this, I have nothing left to give. They feel like they have just drained all of the good that they can offer up uh, out, of their, out of their life. Hmm. The second hallmark is depersonalization, and that's a fancy word for becoming, you become cynical or negative thinking about what you do, and you start detaching from the client, customer, or patient. You no longer feel a connection uh, with them, and therefore you kind of lose interest in helping them. And the third and last hallmark is a lack of a sense of personal accomplishment. And that's where you come to feel that you, you're no longer making a difference in the lives of, of your client, customer, or patient. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's so. You know, I, come, I came to feel like I wasn't making a difference in the lives of my patients. And, of course, that wasn't true, but it was the way I felt, and that's the way people feel. So those three hallmarks, wow. emotional exhaustion, keyword exhaustion, depersonalization, keyword cynicism, and a lack of a sense of personal accomplishment, and the key word there is inefficacy. You feel inefficacious. Mm. Boy, it sounds like a lot of people, doesn't it, that just it, you see, you talk to them, and what a lonely kind of empty space that is. What What do we do if we sense that we um, are feeling that um, that uh, burnout? What what do you suggest we do? What are the steps to moving out of it? The first is to determine what uh, what type of burnout you, you have, because there's two. There's individual burnout, and that's the person burns themselves out. And then there's organizational burnout, and that's burnout caused by the work environment. I will tell you that only 10%, just 10% of the time does the individual burn themselves out. Hmm. of the time, it's the work environment. And it gets back to those six major mismatches that I told you about a few moments ago. Those must be eliminated in order to eliminate, mitigate, alleviate, or eliminate uh, burnout from the workplace. So most of the time when an individual burns themselves out, it's because of some behavior. Either their life's out of balance, they're not paying enough attention to the other realms in their life, all they do is work, and so they kind of ignore their emotional realm, their spiritual realm, their physical realm, and so workaholics can burn themselves out. Um, Yes, if someone gets involved with uh, chemical dependency or alcoholism or some other uh, distraction like that that's self-destructive, that that can burn people out. But that's only 10% of the time. The other 90% of the time, it's the work environment. And so changes have to be, structural changes have to be made in the work environment in order to eliminate it from the workspace. And if you can't get the attention of the employer to make the changes that are needed, then, you know, folks sometimes have a hard decision to make. Um, they, 
if you can't change your work environment and you can't change yourself to, to love what you're going through, then you have to start considering changing work environments, you know, uh, leaving that job and finding one that's more uh, conducive to your core values and, and, and what you want uh, in, in work. So I do not recommend people stay in a job where they're burned out if the work environment's not going to change because uh, you can get through it. Uh, some people can, like I said, they can put their head down and grind away, despising what they do until retirement, but they end up bitter and angry and resentful because they feel like life did not give them uh, what they wanted. Hmm. What would you recommend to the to a manager or a boss that's seeing their their people burning out, or if if they're just seeing that organizationally, it's the system itself is creating a lot of burnout. Well, I would get a, a consult. Uh, there's a, a natural kind of uh, workflow that uh, goes through a consultation for burnout where you actually survey the employees uh, to find the degree to which they're burned out. You use a mass like burnout inventory uh, to determine that. Then there's another instrument called the Areas of Work-Life Survey um, that uh, identifies those six major mismatches and which ones are being negatively impacted. And then you do a debriefing for each of those, and you figure out some plan, put some plans into place or programs or policies that begin to decrease the impact of those mismatches and, and uh, enhance the ones that are that are positively impacted, so that you can reduce the risk of burnout in the work environment and increase what we call engagement, which is the exact opposite of burnout. Engagement is um, the hallmarks of engagement are bigger dedication and absorption, the exact opposite of those three hallmarks of burnout. So uh, it's all about, for the work environment, it's all about eliminating those mismatches. And if, if the employer is sufficiently large enough, I would recommend these days um, either a wellness coordinator or a wellness director uh, and give them a budget and give them a mandate and give them some authority because they will more than pay them for themselves by ridding workplace of, uh, of burnout. Uh, and the, the way they do that is by, you know, decreasing turnover, decreasing customer complaints or patient complaints, de- decreasing employee complaints, uh, producing a better product and service, and becoming more efficient. All those things, there's a definite return of investment on investing in burnout elimination, mitigation, and alleviation. Yeah. Man, Clark, this is such great stuff. And I, I appreciate it. I mean, I'm sad you went through it, but uh, in a way, I'm glad you went through it because we need we need people like you that can wrap your mind around something as important as this. Dr. Clark Gaither, again, is his name. And uh, when you think about it, you know, if you're feeling that burnout, if you're feeling that exhaustion, that tired, uh, you know, incapable of of keeping it up and being interested and energized anymore, then we've got to do something about it. And so go check out that book, Reignite, do something about it, get get to a healthier place. And if you're a manager and a leader, let's, let's see if we can't prevent that as well. It's not easy. I mean, people are driven in so many different ways. And a lot of times it's, you're just trying to stay ahead of the game. But that's why we bring you these ideas, these tools. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, uh, talking more and more about resiliency. This is uh, our goal, is to help you be healthier and happier and to live a, a longer, happier life.
are you, boy? Are you too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. Now, I've been talking about resiliency and the fact that we needed a metaphor. We needed a better metaphor to talk about how to help our kids be resilient. The metaphor I came up with is we're preparing them for a journey, right? We're preparing them for a life trek. They're going to have to leave us eventually, get out there and get on the road and make life happen. And because we can't make sure everything is perfect for them, we have to give them the tools they need to make sure that they can handle it. And I talked about some levels of independence that we needed to reach with our children and and help them reach. One level was physical independence, where they can take care of themselves physically, they can pay for their own bills, they have financial independence to be able to, you know, eat and sleep and take care of everything they need to take care of. They have a healthy diet, they know how to exercise, they know hygiene, they they can take care of themselves physically. They have to be socially independent so the relationships are strong. That they can, the people that they meet in the journey uh, are there, and they can know how to negotiate and mediate and 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 talk and actually hold a conversation with other people. They need to have intellectual um, uh, interdependent or independence and know how to grow and learn and know how to take a difficult situation and figure it your way through it. Which is why we sometimes need to allow our children to fail a little bit more. And hopefully uh, not fail just to fail, but fail so that they can learn to learn. And that's the one of the big goals we need. We also need to make sure we get them emotionally independent. Emotion um, is to understand the promptings they're getting, understand what their body's telling them, understand what they're thinking and feeling, that they're okay with emotion, that they know how to manage their emotion. And if their emotion's getting too high or amped up, they know how to calm it down and slow it down that they also know how to recognize the emotions of others and um, and have some compassion. We want them to be self-aware of their emotional states. We also want them to use their emotion as a motivator so that they can get up in the morning and, and go about their journey and go continue their trek um, forward because they understand what their emotions are telling them. And the last area we need to be independent in is um, our spiritual independence, right? We have to know that deep down inside of us, we are connected to a bigger purpose. We are connected to a more uh, impactful knowledge, a more impactful uh, purpose in this life. We also want to be connected into a higher power, a higher source that can give us more light, more information, more understanding. And uh, by having ourselves anchored independently in our spiritual compass, then we can use that as our GPS as we're out on our trek, we can use our spirituality to kind of know where we are in relation to where we want to be. It also becomes our map. It helps us understand what direction we need to go. So if you think about it, if we have these five areas, then we can make the trek work. And that really is what resiliency is for our children, that they have the spiritual connection so they know where they are in relation to where they want to be, that they have the emotional connection so that they actually have the energy and the excitement and they can read their promptings and their their motivations as they go through life, that they have the intellectual connection where they can get the skills they need, the tools they need along the journey. They have the social connection so they actually know how to be a friend and uh, follow a guide and get the help and have a, and have people around them that can support them on the journey and physically the physical connection to their body and which is going to be delivering all of these things. 
five basic areas that we we would want to try to drive more and more resiliency through. And uh, it's parenting 101, right? Not easy, not easy, but definitely, definitely worth it. And, you know, we're already doing it. Let's just start focusing and making sure we're doing it a little more intentionally. We'll continue the journey, folks. Up next, we'll be talking about a Zen approach to conflict resolution. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, if you've ever had to deal with conflict, and we all do, right, especially in our most important relationships, we want to do it in a way that we can find the peace and get to that peace. And a lot of times we wonder if it's possible. Well, a while ago, I interviewed um, a, a woman named Diane Hamilton, who's the author of Everything is Workable, a Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. And she shared so many valuable insights with us about how to manage our emotions, how to manage our our upsets, and uh, we wanted to share a little bit of that with you today. I, uh, I, I continued an interview with her, and in the interview I asked, how do I turn off my fight or flight? Well, exactly. So you just nailed it. So everybody who's listening knows that we have this fight or flight system in our body and that when we hear a perspective that disagrees with ours, ours for some reason – our body, our old, the old part of our brain experiences it as a threat. And as soon as we start to feel that threat, we start to produce adrenaline, cortisol, and all of a sudden we start getting bathed in these um, hormones that are really preparing us for fight or flight. Mm. So the question is, how do I stay and listen to somebody when my body is telling me I should get up and run or my body should yeah. say, no, you need to stop? And so the, the trick is to realize that to listen to someone else doesn't mean you agree. So this is the first thing, because people think that if I, if I actually listen to what you have to say, you're going to think that I agree with you. Right. So you have to give yourself permission to listen and to let those sensations be in the body, but really learn how just to stay present and try to listen even though you feel that way. And basically over time, we talk about creating new neural pathways in the brain. So what happens is that as you learn to do that, the older part of who you are starts to learn how to calm down and be connected to what we call the prefrontal cortex, which is where your, your thoughts are and your rationality. And then pretty soon there's actually a circuit between that fight or flight impulse and the part of you that's actually able to sit there and listen. And then it becomes, that's a habit. And that becomes a habit. Absolutely. So, so now I can, I can sit and do it. Isn't it amazing though, that that fight or flight instinct was to make sure I wasn't, you know, eaten by a tiger. Right. And yet now it's, it's going off in me when my wife's like, can we talk? <laughs> run, run, the run, tiger's run. out. Yeah. yeah, your hands, your palms start to uh -huh. sweat, your heartbeat increases, your your neck gets red, <laughs> you know, you feel your throat tighten. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like somebody just, the, you know, like the wrong glance. Yeah. And it's just my wife. <laughs> yeah, no, it's wild. Relax, Matt. What, yeah, take it easy. Uh, what I found, too, is um, if when I work with clients, just pointing out the fact that you're starting – I call it being hijacked – that you're starting to be, be run by your fight-or-flight brain, yeah. Yeah. your amygdala. Um, just yeah. noticing the pattern might help you sit in it because – and then I also notice that if I can get them to be listening in order to then be able to show the person that I'm hearing them. Yep, exactly. That actually yeah. takes me out of my fight-or-flight brain and puts me into my higher brain. 
Yes, just the right. act itself of me listening and knowing I'm going to have to show you I heard what you said. Yeah, I'm going to have to actually speak and use that part of my brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is, is that it's 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 an old tried and true method. But but the uh, the physiologists tell us this that if you actually, if you relax the breath and you create more rhythm in the breath, and you make it smooth like you're sipping through a straw, literally your brain stops producing cortisol or the stress hormone almost immediately. Really. So as soon as you regulate the breath. Boom! All of a sudden, those hormones stop being dripped into your system, and once they're in there, my understanding is it takes almost twenty minutes yeah. for those to go out of your system. Right. In fact, I've even for heard me t- me what, if they draw your blood, you could have elevated levels of adrenaline for twenty-four hours after an yeah. event. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so physiology turns out to be a big, important part of communication skills is learning how to work with our physiology. Who to thunk it? I just Not me. I thought the whole problem was my wife. Well, there is that. Yeah, it's no, it's my husband. It's your husband. Oh, is it your husband? Okay, yeah, we got to get him together. The real problem. That's right. It's a. Uh, it, but that's. The, I guess that's the next problem, right? Is the minute I think the problem is outside of me, mm-hmm. that messes me up too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because the minute you think the problem's outside of you, you lose power to be able to solve the problem. Mm. What so do you, when you keep it in your own sphere, or at least part of it in your own sphere? You have more power. Yeah, you don't want to give up that power. But we do that all the time by blaming the other and reacting to the other. Yeah, precisely. We give our power away by not, not saying, okay, what is there that I can do? How can I participate in, in solving this problem? It, it seems like these conversations that are so conflicted, it's really more about in our, our own insecurities, our own fears. There's something else mm-hmm. going on deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of times we're, what happens is that we, we just very subtly stop believing that other people are for us, and we, very, we stop believing that we're for other people. And so then this separation sets in, and then pretty soon we're sort of in a survival mode where we're just going to kind of take care of ourselves and the world's against us. And it takes quite a lot of practice to, to get over that. I mean, maybe some people on the line had families where people really genuinely were for each other and there was a lot of cooperation, but others of us may come from families where there wasn't a lot of trust in each other and it's harder to develop that. So part of the reason we want to learn conflict resolution skills is they help us to learn how to trust each other more and how to relax that people really are on our side. It's because a lot of these are scripts, right? Where you're, you taught us about how doing something over time would, would create this this pattern in our brain, this mm-hmm. script. But a lot of the scripts that people are dealing with when it comes to conflict have been created when they were five or ten. Yeah, yeah there, there are lots. Of, when you go deeper, particularly like you're saying in couples' relationships, what you find is that some of our beliefs are old defensive patterns that we had when we were young and that they worked for us. They helped us survive. They helped protect us. And now that we're older, they're what those very same beliefs are what are, what are keeping us from being able to make a real relationship with our partners and our spouses and our friends. The, the habits, the thoughts we have keep us doing the same pattern mm-hmm. without ever evaluating it. So I'm sure part of mm-hmm. your mindfulness approach is making sure you're looking at what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, precisely. And I think really asking yourself, is this familiar to me? Is this, mm. some, is this experience one that I've had before? Have I had it often? Most of the time, when we start noticing that something's very familiar, then that lets us know there's something we can do to change it. Yeah, that's great. A pattern, but right? It's nice, to, it's nice to have coaching, you know, yeah. someone like you. Yeah, it's helpful. But we could just have some other set of eyes on it. 
Yeah, exactly. And someone you trust and you can relax with. Because relaxation is a big part of it. When we're tense, we tend to go down the wrong road. Mm. What do you do when you're – because the group dynamic, a dyad's one thing, right? So Mm -hmm. two people arguing, Mm -hmm. that's one thing. But the minute you get into a group or it's a couple and their parents, Mm -hmm. then what do you do do there to kind of create – or do you just try to keep it to the players? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the reasons family dynamics, particularly when we get older, it's, it's different when we're younger because the parents have authority. But, but when we become grown and we mm. get together with our siblings and our parents are there or we've lost a parent, suddenly the, there's no leadership. And so what's happening is that people are kind of just trading off, you know, there's a lot of coping going on. And even, even where there's a lot of goodwill. So, I, I mean, I, for me, I just try to keep my own center and when I'm in my own center, then I find that I'm kinder to other people. And yeah. then I can sort of, you know, be a positive influence in the space or a positive influence in the dynamic. And, um, and that can be really satisfying even when it doesn't totally succeed. That uh, was Diane Hamilton, author of Everything is Workable, a Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. It's been a joy, a pleasure being with you. Thanks so much for your time. Stick with BYU Broadcasting. So much uh, good to help you see the good in the world as well.